Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Good morning again. Everyone. The, uh, the text that was read is generally understood to mean that uh, in this lifetime, during, during the course of your life, Jesus will make sure that everything goes well with you, that you'll find rest for your soul, basically, that, that uh, when you run into problems and difficulties and you feel weary and downtrodden and having a difficulty trying to uh, get along, make each day, make it through each day and to the next day, that, that He'll give you that type of rest. And that's, that's true, He will. But there's something beyond this, and that has to do with the soul. And he says, I will give your soul rest. The, uh, the idea of a soul, apart from a body, is not unique to Christians. We know that. We know that because that's what the Scriptures teach. That, that's how we know it. But we also know it intuitively. We know that there's something more to life than than just the body. We know that. And we know that when we take someone to the graveyard with gentle hands and broken hearts and put them in a crypt or in the tomb, we know that, that something is not with that body. And we understand that it's the soul, the soul of the individual, the person themselves. I want to remind you of something, and that is that when we talk about the soul, we're talking about the individual, the combination of the individual's personality and their being, who they are. They are an individual. They're someone distinct. And it's not necessarily the body that gives them the distinction, although the body also helps us identify the difference between individuals. But when we talk about the soul, we're talking about that part of an individual that will go beyond the grave. Now that doesn't mean, and I, I need to hasten to tell you this, that when we talk about the soul going beyond the grave and existing beyond the grave, we're not just talking about the fact that someone remains vivid in your memory. Your memory does not keep someone alive. That individual, that soul, is going to be alive whether you remember or forget them. They will always be eternal. The soul lives on past the mortal flesh and the passing of the body into death. Now we as Christians are not the only people that believe that. Nor are we the first ones to believe that. As a matter of fact, ancient and modern civilizations all have a concept of the soul existing beyond the mortal body. We all have that. Even today, when you talk to people who, who believe themselves to be highly intellectual and, uh, and actually in the future concept of the, their own mind that they are at the very forefront, they're in the phalanx of, of, of science, they will tell you that they believe that there's something more to man than just the body, more to mankind, more to the individual. That there is a soul. Now they don't know what any, anything about it. They don't know what to do about it. But they still believe that. 
And so it's not unique to us to believe that the soul continues past the death of the mortal flesh. Now let's, let's just let's think about this for a, a little while. The belief that the soul of a human being transcends this mortal veil is prevalent in all cultures. All cultures have believed that and still do, ancient and modern. The ancient cultures had a concept of the soul passing beyond the mortal body. If we, if we look back, and of course some transcribed this, some carved it in rocks and so forth, so, but when we look back to the records that we have intact of individuals and cultures that believed that the soul went on and had some concept of where it went, we could start, for instance, with the Egyptians. The Egyptians had a, had a very solid concept in their own minds of the fact that the soul of an individual, the individual himself or herself, went beyond the grave. And so, in, in preparation for that, they developed what we now practice, mummification. Or uh, making sure that they preserve the corpse of the individual that is left behind. And they did, that, they, they did this with what is called natron, or a sort of a sulfuric acid that they used, a salt. Sodium mainly is made up of sodium. But they, they divested the body of the entrails and so forth, and sometimes even took the brain out of the cavity, and they did this in, in some very gruesome ways. They didn't cut the skull open. But they did, they did uh, remove some of the organs, and they packed these with, the, with natron, and it, it had a tendency of dissolving of the uh, entrails of the body. But they, they believed that the soul was not the body, but that the body would be necessary for the soul in another life. And it wasn't just the pharaohs and just the, just the hierarchy that believed and practiced this. They had three levels of mummification, if I can say it. Preserving the body. They had three levels, depending on how much money you had, how wealthy you were, and where you stood in the, in the Egyptian caste. C-A-S-T-E, the system of society. So if you were higher up, you, you had a better treatment. But nevertheless, all of them felt like all levels of society were engaged in preparing their death, their dead, for an afterlife. And that afterlife, they felt, was, was to take a journey, that the soul would take a journey and would eventually need that body. So the body was mummified. And then, of course, with, with some that, that were higher in the caste system, they buried them in the, in the pyramids and in, in the uh, tombs, tombs of the kings that were uh, sometimes carved into the face of rocks and so forth. And they buried them with all sorts of provision for that journey. And sometimes it was, it was presented as a, as a sailing voyage from one, one stage of life to another. And they were on their way to what they called the uh, the land of reeds, R-E-E-D-S. The soul was believed to embark upon that sort of journey. Now, there was nothing about judgment in the Egyptian concept. They didn't believe that, that there, would, there would be a judgment of any nature after the dead were gone. 
just that they need, need to make sure that their dead made the journey okay and got to the land of reeds. That was the basic idea of, pre of preserving the bodies. The Greeks had another expression. Now, I'm using this because we have information that tell us what the, what the Greeks did and what the Egyptians did with their dead. Now, the Greeks uh, believed that the soul traveled to the entrance of the underworld and that there were several gates that the soul went through. And these gates had to do with the passions of the individual while they were alive. For instance, the, the, the gate of anger, the gate of old age, they even had a gate of old age, the gate of greed, the, the, uh, the gate of violence, the gate of grief, the gate of anxiety, the gate of hunger, all sorts of gates that they had conceived in their mind that the soul went through to get to the underworld, which is called Hades, the world of the dead. And it was a dark place. When they prepared their bodies, the bodies for the journey, and they felt that there was, a, again, there was a journey that was taken by the soul, they placed a coin underneath the tongue of the dead, then prepared them for death. And the coin was to pay the ferryman, whose name was Charon, who ferried them across one of six rivers to another side called Tartarus. And that side was never pleasant, was never, never something that would be uh, desirable. It was always a morbid place. The, the Greeks had a very morbid idea of the underworld. But the ferryman would take them ac across one of the rivers into what is called Tartarus, which was the abode of the dead. And some of you may recognize the name of one of these rivers. It was called the River Styx, S-T-Y-X. So that was the concept that the Greeks had. And the Greeks, again, did not have a concept of judgment. It's just that the, the individual, whatever they, whatever they did on this earth, determined whether they were going to where they were going to be, but none of it was pleasant in the Greek underworld. The Near Eastern religions had a concept of death, and so did the Far Eastern religions. Now, I'm just telling you this because I want you to understand that all civilizations had a concept of the continuity of the soul of man. All, all civilizations ancient and modern, enlightened and unenlightened, they all had that concept and still do. Now, the, the Far Eastern religions like Hinduism and Sikhism and Jainism and even Buddhism had the concept of the transmigration of the soul. In other words, your soul, if you were a Hindu, you believed that your soul would pass into somebody else. Or if you weren't high enough in the caste system, you would pass into something else. You'd go into some other form of life. And that would continue over a period until finally you just dissolved into the nether. Nothing. You dissolved into nothing. Again, there was, wasn't, wasn't a concept of judgment except for the fact that if, if you had good karma, you're in the right caste. If you had good karma, 
then you would go, instead of going into a lower individual when you passed from one individual to the next, that you'd go into a higher caste system. In other words, you would not come back if you were in the highest caste. You would not come back in the lowest caste of society. You'd come back in the good. And you'd just keep going until you finally faded into eternity. Now, the, the scriptures tell us, of course, that a different story than all of these, the, the scriptures tell us that there is, in fact, an afterlife. And I think that's what Jesus was talking about in, in Matthew chapter 11. But when he talks about the afterlife, there's a couple of texts that, that we need to make sure that we are familiar with, because I, I'm not going to get into them, but I want you to know that if, if you want to know something about the type of body that you're going to need in the afterlife, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a good detail of what that body is going to be like. Now, Paul said it's, it's not going to be like the one you're carrying around right now, the body you have right now. So that when you die and this, these ashes return to ashes and the dust to dust, this body is going to dissolve. It's going to go away. But the body you bring back, God will make, will form according to the seed, according to the pattern that he wants. It will, but it will, be, it will be an immortal body because your soul is immortal. But he, Paul talks about that. He talks about the fact that in the resurrection you will have a body that is not subject to all the problems of the body that you're in right now. So you don't have to be concerned about putting a coin under your tongue before you die or about uh, making sure that, you, that, that uh, when you go that you have enough provision to get you over to the land of reeds. You don't have to worry about that. Basically, what you have to worry about, if you worry at all, is that you, you're in the arms of Jesus Christ who's going to carry you across make sure that everything is well with you, well with your soul. The, body, the Bible teaches a continuity. Again, I want to remind you that it's not in your memory that a soul exists necessarily. It, he can. Your de beloved departed ones will remain in your heart, but that's not where the soul is. The soul is alive and well and in God's custody. Now that's the point we want to make. The continuity of the soul is that when you die, your body dies, but you remain intact. You remain the soul, the individual. Now the Bible teaches differently than the other context. As a matter of fact, if, if we were to say, well, where does, where does anyone guarantee some sort of a journey after death to another pleasant or unpleasant land? There actually is no record like we have in the Bible of such a thing. Nobody, nobody's going to tell you how everything goes except you read it in the Scriptures. The Scriptures give you that a guarantee and it, you have a guarantor who can assure you that it's going to happen. That there will be a resurrection, that there will be a better place, and that you will find indeed rest for your soul. Rest for your soul. Now, the Bible teaches clearly a continuity of a person's soul. Not necessarily in your memory again. That's not where the soul remains intact. The soul remains intact because God assured that it did. And the scriptures give us that assurance. In Job chapter 19, at verse 25 through 27, 
Job wrote this. He said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that He shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me, though my own ability to constrain myself. He said, I'm going to see Him in my flesh. Now, again, refer back to 1 Corinthians 15 to understand what type of flesh you're going to be in. But the text says that Job said, by inspiration, I will stand upon this earth with my Savior, with my Redeemer, and I'll see Him, even though the flesh has consumed, the worms have consumed this flesh. David made this statement in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22 through 23. When he was talking about, you remember he had, a, he had an adulterous affair with, with Bathsheba. She had, she had a child, a boy. And God, was, God told David through his prophet, uh, Nathan, that he was going to die. The boy was going to die. And so David went into a state of, of uh, anxiety and, and uh, depression. And he quit eating. And he quit taking care of himself. And they thought when the boy died that David would probably take his own life. They, they feared for him. But when the boy died, David got up and washed his face and cleaned himself up and had a meal. And they said, well, what is this? The boy died. And he said, well, here's what he said. He said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Okay. Now, Jesus promised that we would have a body, 1 Corinthians 15, to match our eternal spirit. But in the meantime, before that time, we will be without a body when we die. We will not have a body, but our soul, our individual, who we are, will remain. Now, Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm referring back to Scripture because Scripture is the only book that tells us any, it gives us any of this information. Paul said, I don't want to be unburdened, unclothed, but he said, I want to be clothed upon with my body which is from heaven. So he knew that he would, one of these days, have to leave this body behind and that he would have another body, but there would be an interim time when he would be unclothed. Now that's probably the period of time that the Egyptians are thinking that somehow there's going to be a trip... Uh, a trip somewhere, a soul journey somewhere, that would eventually get them to another place where they could reclaim that body. And so they were trying to keep it intact so it would be okay when they got there. And the Greeks, the same thing. And the Eastern religions, well, they, they just thought the body would be... Uh, well, the term they, they usually use is, is that, that they would be transmigrated, would go from one to another, or that uh, a person would come back somehow and reinvest the same body that they left behind. But that's not true, of course, and we know that's not, that hasn't happened, and there hasn't been any reassurance that that could happen. We have a reassurance that a body can be reunited with a spirit because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a historical fact. 
it is a chronological fact. It is an archaeological fact because we can demonstrate it from evidence that we have in the scriptures. So, when Jesus was here on this earth, he made the statement himself that he promised through the scriptures that there, would, there was going to be a resurrection, that there would be a continuity of the soul of man, and eventually there would be a reuniting of body and soul. And it was in definitive terms. Now the Pharisees came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, and we have the account. And they were asking him the question about the resurrection. They said, a man married and he died. And so his brother had to take on, according to the Levite law of remarriage, his brother had to marry the woman because of that law and bring up seed to that brother's name, to his name. Well, he died. Anyway, the Pharisees made the conundrum that he went, this, this woman went through seven husbands. And then the, the question was, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? And, and Jesus made the answer this way in Matthew chapter 20, verse, 22, verse 29. He said, you err not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, and here's what we need to point out. Have you not read that which is spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of the living and not the God of the dead. So he's referring specifically to the continuity of the soul. When you die, when, you're, when you shed your flesh, you will not die as an individual. You won't die. You will still be alive. That's the point. The Apostle Paul, and he, by the Scriptures, he was inspired. He affirmed such an event involving the continuity of the soul was a traditional doctrine that the nation of Israel had held over the years. He said, he said this idea of a resurrection is not new because it's, it's been going on. And you know, that, that takes us back to the writing of the Old Testament and when the Old Testament was being carried out. And Paul is talking about the Scriptures. He's saying the Scriptures tell us about a resurrection. And so he, he said uh, in chapter 26 at verse 6 through 8 of the book of Acts, he was talking to Agrippa, who was a king, one of the triumvirate of Judea at that time, a king of Israel. And uh, he said, he said uh, I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. He's talking to Agrippa, the king. He said, Under which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the fact that the soul continues and God will raise the dead. That's what he's talking about. In Acts 17, at verse 30 through 31, Paul was standing on Athens, on the hill of Athens in Greece. And uh, he was at the, probably at the Acropolis. And they had been questioning him about what he was teaching, all these intellectual Greeks. And he said, he said in his speech, he said, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. 
because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whether, wherefore he hath given assurance unto all men in that he has raised him from the dead. Now the point is, he's saying, you're going to come back from the grave. You're going to be resurrected. And the proof of it is that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now the Egyptians did not have anyone who had come back from the dead to assure them that they would be raised from the dead. The Greeks didn't have anybody like that. The Buddhists don't have anybody like that. The Sikhs have nothing like that. The Jains have nothing like that. The Hindus have nothing like that. The world has nothing like that. Ancient cultures, modern cultures have no assurance like that. But as a believer in Christ, the scriptures give us the assurance that there will be a resurrection because we know one who was resurrected. And if Jesus didn't rise, when you read 1 Corinthians 15, you'll see this. If Jesus didn't rise, you're, you're not going to either. He is the assurance that there will be a resurrection. Now the scriptures teach there'll be a resurrection and it teaches it. The scriptures teach the resurrection as a promise. In other words, you're a believer. I'm talking to believers. You have been promised that you will be resurrected. You have that promise. You've got that promise. The scriptures actually give you that promise. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, Paul said, Bodily exercise profit little, but godliness is profitable unto all, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. You've been promised a resurrection. You're going to get one. If you believe the scriptures, you're coming back. Hebrews chapter 9, 15 says that they which are called might receive the promise of inher eternal inheritance. Now you can't have an eternal inheritance unless you have an eternal body. And you can't have an eternal body unless you resurrected with an eternal soul. So an eternal inheritance argues a priori that you will be resurrected. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, you have need of patience after having done the will of God, you might receive the promise. And what is that promise? 1 John 2, verse 25 says, this is the promise that He has promised us, even eternal life. Okay. So the Scriptures tell us, tell you, tell me, I'm going to be resurrected, and I have a promise. Who made that promise? Well, we'll see. The scriptures also teach the resurrection of the body and soul as a hope. As a hope. You know, you can't live without hope. When you get up in the morning, you, you have hope. You have hope that you can get up. You have hope that you can walk around. That You have hope that you can live another day. You have hope that you can live another hour, another minute. Without hope, there's nothing but despondency, nothing but dark clouds, and nothing but morbidity. Morbidity. That's all you have if you have no hope. But the Scriptures promise us that we're going to rise again. Promise you. You're going to rise again. 1 Timothy 1 at verse 2 says, We are in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. Because He made man a living soul, and He made your living soul 
an eternal soul. There is a continuity of you past death, mortal death. First Timothy or Titus chapter three verse seven says we are made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Hebrews six eleven twelve says we desire that every one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. First Peter one three says blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope or a living hope. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, I have a hope that I can rise because Jesus rose. That's my hope. That's why, that's why I believe that I'm going to be raised again. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Be ready to give everyone an answer. And my answer is, why do I hope that I'm going to be resurrected? Because Jesus was resurrected. That's my hope. Now I'm going to take you somewhere else at this point. Just see if you can keep in mind what I've been saying. The soul is going to continue. You have a promise that you're going to be resurrected. And it is your hope that things will get better than in this life. We have the life, the, the promise of life that is and the, that is now that is to come. When Jesus talked about his resurrection, he spoke in unequivocal terms. When he said, I'm going to resurrect, he said it with confidence. I am coming back. In, in the book of John, chapter 2, at verse 18 through 22, he told these people listening to him, he said, destroy this tabernacle, and in three days I will raise it up. He didn't say, destroy this tabernacle, and I'm going to try to get it back. He didn't say that, did he? I'll try to put it back together. He said, destroy this tabernacle. And they understood he was talking about the tabernacle of his body. And that's what Paul was talking about too when he talked about us being in this tabernacle. Peter said the same thing. He said, I, I know why I'm in this tabernacle. I should try to edify you or encourage you. So he was talking about his body. And he said, without any equivocation, he said, I'm going to build it again. I'm going to bring it back. Confidence, you say. Yes, confidence. I'm going to bring it back. He didn't say, I hope I'm going to come back. He didn't say, maybe I'm going to build it back. He didn't say, I'm going to really try. You know, we hear that all the time. Are you, going to, are you going to do this? Well, I'm going to try to do it. Jesus didn't say anything like that. He said, I will build it back. I'm coming back. That's what he said. And in uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, I'm just going, to, just going to refer to these three times. Jesus said three times before he went to the cross. On three different occasions, he made mention of the fact that he was going to be accused, he was going to be rejected, he was going to be scourged, he was going to be killed, and at each time he said, I will rise again. Now then, he didn't say it that way, because he always spoke of himself in the third person. He called himself the Son of Man. Do this to the Son of Man, and the third day he will rise again. He's talking about himself, though. So he's basically saying, do this to me, and I'm coming back. I'm going to, I'm going to come back again. 
I'm going to rise again. Reject me, kill me, I'll rise again. Condemn me, mock me, scourge me, I shall rise. And what did he say? The third day. Was he, was he uh, vague about that? Was he uncertain about that? Did he say, I'm going I'm to do the best I can to get back on the third day? You've heard that, haven't you? You said it yourself. I'll do the best I can to... Jesus didn't say that. He said, I will rise the third day. I'm coming back the third day. And you can stake your soul on that. And again, I refer you back to 1 Corinthians 15. When he came back, he was seen by Peter, the apostles, by the apostle Paul, and by 500 people at one time. And the resurrection, even though a lot of people try to doubt it, it is a historical, grounded historical fact, and it is credible. And so he came back. And we have no other infinite... If, if you say, well, maybe I don't want to believe in Jesus bringing me back. Maybe I'll, I'll turn to some other form of resurrection. There is no other form. There is no other guarantee. There is no other promise anywhere on this earth. There's nothing like it. This is it. This is it. This is the only promise we have. This is the only confidence we have. And he said in Mark 14, 28, he said, Smite the shepherd. And we know who he's talking about. He said, Smite the shepherd. And he said, After I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. And he told them, he said, I'm going to come back and I'll go before you into Galilee. Now, why have I said all that this morning? I said all that this morning to ask you the question. When we talk about the resurrection, what is your confidence level? As a believer in the Word of God, do you actually believe that your soul will continue past the grave? Do you actually believe that? And if you believe that, how do you behave? You say, well, you know what? I hope, of course, there's going to be a judgment. The Bible talks about a judgment. Jesus is going to be the judge. No other religion or former religion talks about a judgment after a resurrection. This is the only one. The, the Egyptians didn't talk about a judgment the Greeks didn't talk about a judgment. The Far Eastern religions don't talk about a judgment. But the Bible talks about a judgment. And you know what that does to us? It says, well, maybe, maybe I'll resurrect. I hope I'm going to be good enough. Right? Isn't that how we think? We begin to get uneasy about the resurrection, don't we? We begin to think, well, okay. Maybe I'm going to resurrect, but I won't be on the good side when I resurrect. So we begin, to, we begin to doubt our ability to participate in. And so when we do that, we, we, we kind of negate the promise. It's a good promise. You say, yeah, but I'm not sure I, I'm going to make it. I'm not sure I'm going to be good enough. I'm, I'm not sure that and it's going to negate hope as well. We, we begin to think, well, there's going to be a resurrection, but... But maybe I won't participate in the good parts of it. You see what I'm getting at? Jesus had no doubts about what he was doing. He just said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go into the grave and you're going to do your best to, to destroy my purposes. You're going to 
scorn me. You're going to scourge me. You're going to you're going to uh, reject me. You're going to revile me. You're going to put me on the cross. You're going to kill me, but I'm coming back the third day. I'm coming back. What confidence? So then I ask you the question, what confidence should we have when we think about the resurrection? You shouldn't be quivering about it. You shouldn't be concerned about it. You say, yeah, but maybe I, I won't be good enough to please him. So I'm going to take you to another text. John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26. Martha and Mary had lost their brother. And uh, when they were, they were asked the question, Martha, Martha said, well, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Though you were dead, though he were dead, he that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live again. He that lives and believes in me shall never die. So when we talk about our resurrection, what we need to do is talk about who's going to be with us and whose resurrection is going to empower us when we come out of the grave. I'm not going to be resurrected to the good land on my own merit. I couldn't make it. And it wouldn't make any difference how many coins you tucked under my tongue when you buried me. I don't have the, I don't have the money to pay my way. I don't have the money to pay my way. It doesn't make any difference who ferries me across the point that my point is. I don't have any way to get across the void from the time I die until the time of the general resurrection and heaven burst upon us. I don't have any way to do it on my own. So the only confidence I can have is that my Savior Jesus Christ, He resurrected. He's going to resurrect me. And He's going to take me. I'm not going to go by myself. He's the one that's going to take me across and carry me and make sure that things are okay. Whatever sins I've committed, he's going to wash them away. And when I, we stand before the throne, he's going to make sure that he's there with me and he's my advocate. He's the one that will make things right for me. Paul said we don't, we don't uh, sorrow as, though, as those who have no hope. We shouldn't. And we shouldn't be timid about it. Yes, you are going to resurrect. And you're going to resurrect and be safe in the arms of Jesus and enjoy all the benefits and the pleasures that will come upon you in heaven after a while, not because you're any good, but because He's very good and He's very good to you. God help you keep that in mind as you pass from day to day in this life. Make sure that you enjoy that promise and that you abound in that hope.